story of Jesus is just the equivalent of a play by Shakespeare, I'm, I'd rather be at the races. Just forget all about it. The wackier and weirder your theory about Jesus, the more publicity you will get. What you quoted from Luke earlier was terrific. I mean, Luke is the Bob Woodward of the early, of the early Jesus movement. Well, welcome to the Ask podcast again with Greg Sheridan. Greg, how are you? Great, David. Great to be with you. Somebody wrote me and said, uh, I hadn't realized that Greg Sheridan was a papist. You know, <laughs> I don't normally trust, uh, you know, how do, how do they say people from Rome? You know, I tried to assure him that you weren't actually from Rome. But uh, what I thought was really quite funny was uh, he said, but I, I loved what he had to say. And if the book's half as good as that, he said, I've already ordered it. And uh, you know, so we're, I mean, we're still, we're still on this thing, uh, the urgent case for Jesus in our world. And by the way, I think this is going to be video for the first time as well. Uh, so I thought, you know, that's good if we're, if we're convincing people that, or maybe, maybe, maybe you're just a close, as I said, maybe you're a closet Presbyterian. Well, you know, David, um, so it is, it is true. I'm a, I'm a Catholic. That's true. And I'm, you know, I'm, Far from denying it, I you know I love my church, my tradition. But but as 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 we've discussed, I very much try in this book to to write from the position of mere Christianity, that C.S. Lewis consensus. I think basically the the proposition of this book is that I believe in the Apostles' Creed, and um, so Christianity that I'm interested in is any any Christianity that can assert the Apostles' Creed, and. Um, the ninety-nine percent we agree on is much more important than the one percent we we disagree on. Um, indeed, some of my foreign affairs readers have, have in recent years said, "I never knew Greg Sheridan was religious or was a Christian." Or you know, he he's always writing about nuclear submarines and the Communist Party of China and defence yeah. and so on. And guess what? It turns out he, he has all these wacky views about uh, about Jesus and so on. Uh, uh, so that some of them has made that. Some people responded by saying, well, now we don't want to take his strategic stuff seriously. Now we realise he's a religious uh, fruitcake. And others of them have said, well, now we must look with mercy and kindness on his strategic foolishness because, after all, he does have uh, Christian belief. The very sort of bog-standard view that the new atheists, and all of our seculars have of Christianity, is, well, you believe it because you were brought up in it and it's blind faith. And it's very interesting, the redefinition of the word faith in dictionaries at the end of the 20th century. It's just, it's a fascinating thing to trace. But in reality, uh, we Christians are saying that we have faith because of what we know, not because of what we don't know. You know, it, it, there's a, it's faith in a, in a person. And for that, we need sources. So you write a story. You've been writing a lot about nuclear submarines. We probably won't get onto that. <laughs> Better but, not to, no. <laughs> But you've been writing a lot. Now, you're not just making it up in your head. You've got sources, you've got contacts, and all the rest of it. Um, what I, I, I want to begin with this, though. And you hit the, the nail on the head right at the beginning. This is we're in chapter two, Jesus's history, living and true. If the resurrection didn't happen, then it's all based on nothing. It's all an illusion. Do you really have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? Well, David, I think you do. Um, that's a That's a... A direct and and brilliant and clear way for you to enunciate it. I try to be a little more gentle because I don't want to 
say that somebody's not a real Christian by my standards or something like that. And I'm not I'm not judging any other person's faith or belief or anything. But uh, somebody else said to me once, you're kind to all Christians except liberal Christians. And uh, I said, well, and I had to think about that. And I thought, well, actually, what I've said is I do agree with any Christian who can assert the Apostles' Creed. But the Apostle Creed says that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, if you if you don't believe that, then um, I can't really see. I, I, it's not even that I would condemn anyone. It's just I don't understand why would you bother with Jesus if it's if it's just a myth, if it's a good story. I remember having an argument with a um, with a liberal theologian once, and he said, you know, there you can get meaning. The, the gospel doesn't have to be literally true. It can have meaning, like a Shakespeare play or. Or, you know, we get a moral out of a story. And I said, well, if if the story of Jesus is just the equivalent of a play by Shakespeare, I'm, I'd rather be at the races. Just forget all about it. I have no interest in it anymore, you know. But, of course, I, I believe it's true. And the only... So there's a lot of analysis which I go in for about the cultural benefits of Christianity and so on. But really, the only reason for believing it is if it's true. And... In this book, David, as we've discussed, I try to approach these events and the Gospels as a journalist, looking at the sources. I, I privilege the oldest sources the best, so I don't think a German biblical scholar 1,800 years after the event is going to know more than the apostolic fathers who, who knew the apostles in person. So as with all journalism, you're very interested in the eyewitnesses, the principles, if you can get them. Um, by principles, I mean the people who were principally involved. Mm-hmm. You're interested in contemporaneous accounts. You're interested in the internal logic of a thing. And then there's a certain art in journalism. You're interested, does it have the feel of truth about it? You know, having been interviewing people and trying to assess truth from falsehood professionally for 43 years, I absolutely approached this task as a professional journalist. And I think on every score, the New Testament uh, scores very well for truth and historicity. And it's important that people know this, not because they should believe in Jesus because, you know, historicity tells them to, but because they should know that historicity offers no objection to believing in, in Jesus. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, I'm a historian, you're a journalist. Um you know, understanding the history is really important in something. So, for example, you do write a lot about China. For me, it would be impossible for you to write about China without having some awareness of the history yeah. of, of where we're coming from. And the, the Bible's very interesting because you get Luke's gospel. Luke, I mean, I always say to people, the, Luke's gospel doesn't begin, you know, there was a hobbit who lived in a hole. You know, it, it begins, most excellent Theophilus, you know, I've undertaken to examine there, lots of people have tried to make an account, but I've undertaken to examine the sources and so on. And now I'm going to tell you what we have seen from from the eyewitnesses. So it claims to be a historical document. Can I ask you this? You, in the same on the same page, you say, "I'm intrigued by this. The Bible's the central book of Western civilization. Um, the West is a culture willing itself into amnesia and ignorance, like a patient carefully requesting their medical records and then burning them." so that they and their physicians will have absolutely no knowledge of what made them sick in the past and what made them well. Do you want to unpack that just a wee bit? So, yeah, David, um, it turns out, so this book, 
very much follows on in a sense from my previous book, God is Good for You. And it, it turns out really that unconsciously, I was trying to answer the essential modernist project of the West of the last couple of hundred years. So it's a project we might call a project of disenchantment, trying to make people um, give up transcendent belief. And it rests on two core propositions. One is that belief in God is irrational. And really, my last book, God is Good for You, dealt a lot with that. And the second proposition is that the New Testament is all lies, all superstition, or if not lies and superstition, it's a long oral tradition which had much mythology and uh, fiction added to it as it was, uh, you know, passed down. Now, until five minutes ago, almost everyone in the West believed that the Bible was true. This was a soundly held belief. Now, I don't want to get theologically controversial here, but I don't necessarily ascribe the same level of historicity to everything in the Old Testament as I do in the New. I do believe that everything in the Old Testament is inspired and it's free from error and it's true as it was meant. But the genres of the Old Testament are so diverse, you know, uh, and um, things are metaphor, things are poems and so on. So I'm not meaning to be too heterodox there, but the New Testament is quite recent. It's only 2,000 years old. It's a specific time in history. It's very falsifiable. You could, you know, if there were obvious things that were made up in the New Testament, you would see them in the Gospels and so on. And a couple of hundred years ago, uh, biblical scholars thought they had a whole list of anachronisms in the New Testament, things that were wrong. And it turned out that the scholars were wrong. And every new discovery we've made has tended to validate the New Testament. So, it's crazy for Western civilization to throw away the New Testament on the basis that it's all obvious mythology. And people ought to know that, in fact, it's increasingly validated by scholarship. Now, this Christianity is a universal religion. It's open to all people, and most people who are Christians are not Westerners. But it is also the historical fact that Western civilization was based on Christianity and particularly on the Christian scriptures. And uh, for us to think that they've been disproved historically is wrong. For us to think they have no value is wrong. And I'd even go further and say they're true. Yeah. You know, there's a guy called Vishnu Mangawadi, uh, uh, an Indian, who's written a book called The Book That Made Your World. And he's basically, he investigated why the West was different. And that's what he comes to. Same with Neil Ferguson when he talks about um, civilization. He talks about how the Chinese looked and and they saw certain things, you know, certain aspects of science and so on. But ultimately, again, it came um, down to Christianity. You speak about biblical scholarship. Now, I was I was really intrigued with this. I'll, I'll give you some quotes later on. But can I say to anyone who's who's listening to this, um, you're not the biggest fan of some biblical scholarship. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. So, look, as a journalist, your, your, your basic instinct is scepticism. So I really, if there's a certain tiny scintilla of utility in the way I've approached the Gospels here, it's trying to come at it as a professional journalist. And um, the, least, the least credible person is the person who is furthest away from the event and has a big interpretive agenda all of their own. That's not to say they can never say something which is valuable, but uh, the, the most important source is the source nearest to the event. So I read a whole lot of books about uh, 
you know, modern scholarship on the Bible and so on. And I was tremendously encouraged to see so many great scholars um, like uh, Richard Balcom and and, uh, and and so many others affirming that the, that the New Testament, that the Gospels were written either by eyewitnesses or by people who interviewed eyewitnesses. What you quoted from Luke earlier was terrific. I mean, Luke is the, I might have said this to you before, he's the Bob Woodward of the early of the early Jesus movement, you know. He says, "Look, I've interviewed everybody. I've read. I've read all the written accounts, and and this is uh, this is the truth." And Luke tells us tells us that. But um, the uh, the the scholarship which developed in particularly in Germany, uh, you know, in the seventeenth eighteenth century, was determined to strip the divine out of the Gospels. So it <laughs> took on faith. It had a position of faith that there could be no such thing as a miracle. So I, I've always held that atheism is a religious faith. Agnosticism is just simply throwing your hands in the air and saying, I don't know. That's a reasonable position. Not my position, but it's a reasonable position. But atheism asserts as a matter of faith that there is no God, there is only matter and energy, there is only physical causality. And the German, the modern biblical scholarship, which really started in Germany, wanted to strip the divine out of the New Testament. So instead of investigating the New Testament authentically, it looked for ways to falsify and marginalise and diminish and get rid of every divine element. So it had to say that all the miracles were false and it had to say that um, that the Gospels could not be accurate. So it developed all kinds of theories that they'd passed down as an oral tradition, a long oral tradition, but here's where modern scholarship helps us, because then we discover a fragment of John's gospel in Egypt, which couldn't be later than the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century. So any theory that it was written 200 years later by church authorities who fitted up all these miracles into poor old simple Jesus, that's just blown out of the water. So scholarship proves to us that it was, that it, you know, the scholars believe John's was the last gospel. We know that it couldn't be later than the. It, it was copied out, became established scripture, was sent to Egypt, all of that by the end of the first century. So Borkham concludes that the Gospels uh, are the work of the eyewitnesses or people who interviewed the eyewitnesses and that they were all written within one lifetime of the death of Jesus. And we also know from history that the Jesus movement was claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead more or less straight away, uh, that uh, Nero was blaming Christians for a fire in Rome in 64. That's barely 30 or 34 years after after Jesus died. So the um, the idea that uh, that the Gospels are, are unreliable and not good history um, doesn't work. Now, they still you still might take the view that they're untrue or that miracles can't happen. That's fair enough. But you have to argue that, as it were, against the preponderance of historical evidence. That's really a faith-based claim that there can be no such thing as a miracle. Or you end up becoming the person who relies on Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code yeah. to give you your history, yeah. which is farcical. You know, from, from a serious academic point of view, that is really farcical. That... that, that um, I think it's called Papyrus 54, that fragment of John's Gospel, and it's in the Rylands uh, Library in the University of Manchester. And some have dated it to around AD 55, and most reckon, it, reckon it's no later than the 80s. 
you know, so of the first century. So that it really did blow apart all of that. But I loved what you had to say. Let me just go some of this. I mean, you, you, you do come across as very genial and gentle, but you're quite strong in some things that you say, you know. Um, you, you talk about biblical scholarship can wander down many fanciful false roads with no immediate consequences. The long run consequences, though, are dire. If the fantasies are accepted in biblical scholarship and replace the reality, it is not a bridge, but the whole of society that might ultimately fall down. Fall down. And you say most believing Christians probably more or less ignore biblical uh, scholarship. And then you you um, you have this. Uh, you, you don't want to devalue the work of biblical scholars. You're not against academic study of the Bible or a biblical scholarship. You make that clear. The best of them expand our understanding of the Bible and its background. But almost everything the speculators say about dating and authorship and so on is limited, it's speculated, and unless it proceeds from a major archaeological find. A lot of what many of them have said is plain wrong, and some of it weirdly and bizarrely and demonstrably wrong. You, you cite someone else as well who, uh, who who's actually I, I really, really do admire, and that is Pope Benedict. Um, and I think his his three books on Jesus, but also his critique of the scholarship that you're talking about is is very profound. And uh, I, I think he comes up with a good Protestant understanding of the scriptures. <laughs> no, I just think it's it's a you know why shouldn't God be able to communicate through human beings' writing and to guide them in such a way? And it is amazing how the Bible has continued. So do you want to say anything more about biblical scholarship before we go on? Sure, David. So just in a sense, um, two other things really briefly. One, one tiny uh, aside on, um, on uh, the Pope Emeritus Benedict. Uh, the silliest yeah. aspect of that movie, The Two Popes, is to present Benedict as having no sense of humour. I mean, it was a grossly ridiculous film. But everything Benedict writes, it seems to me, is it's often screamingly funny and wonderfully astringent. And in, in the Erasmus uh, lecture, which I quote, he says, we will know the Antichrist when he comes, for he will have a degree, a higher degree in biblical studies from a German university, and he will have just published a path-breaking study and so on. So this is Benedict sending up his own uh, his own colleagues, all of whom he knows, of course. But mm -hmm. the, the only other point I make about biblical scholarship is Scholarship is valuable, but it has to have a becoming sense of modesty. I mean, a lot of scholarship is speculation, and it's not unreasonable to make that speculation. But you can't move, you know, the modern mind moves so easily from perhaps this is possible to this certainly happened. It just leaps. It just makes a leap like that. And then all the subsequent scholarship uh, is very often based on the speculation becoming a certitude. Then you have an archaeological discovery which blows up the original speculation, and you think this whole tradition has been um, has been based on nothing. And then, um, you know, if you try to, then I, in that chapter I offer a few examples. If you try to apply the techniques of modern scholarship to a modern issue, you can get ridiculous results. Uh, so, you know, you could... Um, you could go to a, a, a car yard and decide that Western civilization worshipped cars, or the, the silly, very local example I give is that you could easily in a 1,000 years decide that Bob Carr was the god of sport in New South Wales because he presided over the Olympics and so on. Yes. And the evidence for it would be much more convincing than 
the evidence that biblical scholarship, uh, biblical scholars provide for their weird interpretations of the Bible, but it also would be completely wrong. Bob Carr is the person in the whole universe I've ever met who has least interest, uh, least interest in sport. And the final thought, David, is this. The wackier and weirder your theory about Jesus, the more publicity you will get. Uh, this book was partly provoked because I did an ABC program, The Drum, with some American uh, scholar of Iranian descent who had written a new book about Jesus, discovering that Jesus had no divine claims at all. He was absolutely a political zealot. He was a political revolutionary who had no real interest in uh, metaphysical issues or the soul or divinity or God or anything. This theory was complete crackers, absolute bananas, just moonshine, but it was getting worldwide attention and respectful uh, you know, airing on the ABC, whereas when is, when is the last time the ABC is, uh, I'm not really having a shot at the ABC here, but when is the last time they've had a scholar on a TV program who says, yes, it's actually all true? So the, mm -hmm. the dramatic is the opposite of the true very often in modern scholarship. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you and I, we usually uh, share uh, G.K. Chesterton quotes and you know, we've 22 minutes before I'd mentioned him, but I, I, I think today we're sharing Pope Benedict quotes. So in that kind of magnificent obsession, I, I quoted Pope Benedict several times, and you're right about his sense of humor. I love this. He talks about the anti-Christian viewpoint, and he says this, and the antichrist, with an air of scholarly excellence, tells us that any exegesis that reads the Bible from the perspective of faith in the living God, in order to listen to what God has to say, is fundamentalism. He wants to convince us that only his kind of exegesis, the supposedly purely scientific kind in which God says nothing and has nothing to say, is able to keep abreast of the times. Yeah, that's a great Benedict line. And um, I mean, I must say, I, I was tremendously influenced, as I say, by um, by Richard Borkham, who's a great, yeah. great scholar. I loved a book by Brant Petrie, The Case for Jesus, uh, mm -hmm. very, uh, very robust very robust uh, uh, scholar. And then even um, even books that I didn't agree with, like uh, John Barton's A History of the Bible, mm -hmm. he doesn't have the same view of the Bible that you and I have, but but he's a very honest scholar. So he pre presents the different theories and how you get to them. And, of course, the theory with overwhelmingly the most uh, cogent proof is that these are historical documents written about the time we thought, you know, that they claim, written by the people who say they, they wrote them. And, of course, if you don't believe that, I, again, I find the position of liberal Christianity really weird here. If you mm -hmm. don't believe that Luke or John wrote their Gospels, then what you're saying is the Gospels themselves contain lies because Luke says, here am I, Luke, you know, most excellent Theophilus, I'm writing this account for you. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't really Luke, the whole thing is a lie anyway. So why read one paragraph more if it starts with a lie? And uh, at the end of John, he says, and this is uh, this is John telling you this. Uh, so I accept that John might have dictated it to a stenographer or something. But but if it wasn't really John telling you, then the whole thing is a lie anyway. Why are we even bothering with it? You know, just just forget about it. Our, our time is, is going so quickly. But I tell you, let me come back to this the very end of the chapter where you say, 
all Christian traditions regard the Gospels as historically true. That's true. Um, and you say it's part of the distinctiveness of Christianity that it locates God in history, history 2000 years ago and history today. As a lifelong journalist, I have a particular reason for recommending the Gospels. They validate accurate reporting, even if the editing varies from edition to edition. We journalists typically blame a lot on editors, or to put it another way, they are true. Okay, can I can I offer you a, a, a theory and tell me what you think of this? Richard Balcom's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is a brilliant book. You're right. It, it is a brilliant book. The reason there are four Gospels is... They are the account of the life of Christ from four different perspectives. As a journalist, would that not give more credence to them than if you just had one eyewitness or you just had four people saying exactly the same thing? Because then it would mean that they'd colluded because nobody sees everything exactly the same way. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely, David. So journalistically, the Gospels have the ring of truth. They don't have the ring of confected documents. I've read a lot of confected documents over the years. I, I mean, I was uh, lived under the shadow of the Cold War for, for decades and was a foreign affairs journalist, and I read countless doctored, you know, Soviet accounts of events and North Korean accounts of events and so on. And you, you have a feel in a doctored um, account, which is false, it's always consistent. It's always unanimous. It always has no internal contradictions. On the other hand, you know, my son is a, is a police detective and um, every crime scene report contains lots and lots of things which seem inconsistent. They may, in fact, not be inconsistent, but they reflect the different view that each person had of something. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, you know, a lot of uh, people who don't believe in the Gospels at all say that um, it it was later on that the church authorities inserted miracles in order to make Jesus divine. Well, if that was the case, why didn't they simply assert a straightforward statement at the beginning of the Gospel saying Jesus is God? Why did they have this narrative account in which there is this progressive revelation by Jesus, in which everything has the ring of truth. I mean, the personality of Jesus is absolutely compelling. I quote the great uh, Belgian scholar Pierre Rickmans in saying that, you know, he's one of the world's greatest, he's dead now, but he's one of the world's greatest experts on Confucius. He said he believes Confucius was a real person because the things that Confucius said were so distinctive and so uh, redolent of one personality the personality of Jesus is so distinctive in the Gospels, he says, you cannot believe that this was made up by a committee of people later on. And the it is possible to reconcile what seem to be the inconsistencies of the Gospels. And, of course, again, there's lots of things we don't know. So Jesus would have had stock stories. You know, as a great preacher, he would have told the same story in different ways many, many times. So one Gospel writer might have heard one performance by Jesus of this story, another gospel writer might have heard another. And the fact that they are all um, written for slightly different audiences, I'm going to write the same truth about the Chinese Communist Party, whether I'm writing for the Australian or the Wall Street Journal or the Daily Telegraph. I've written for all these papers or whether I'm writing for an academic journal. And just in my own writing, they're going to be radically different styles. The mm -hmm. idea that three or four of my colleagues from different, uh, from different um, you know, backgrounds 
will write about the same event but write about it very differently. That has the absolute ring of authenticity about it. And then, as I said to you before, David, when you actually read the gospel from start to finish, any one of them, and I love Luke, but they're all profound and true and good, the the story of the crucifixion is so gripping. I mean, I mean it, it's just, it reaches out and takes hold of you, the, the humanity, the detail of it. These are all details. It's impossible to imagine a committee making them up. Now, that does not prove in a court of law that they are true, but reading them as a journalist, they absolutely have the ring of truth to me. If I read accounts like that of, you know, the Rwandan genocide or something, I would say, yes, that's absolutely true. I'd have no no uh, hesitation in um, in accepting the truth of stories that were exactly like that. Listen, that is all, all this has been really, really helpful. I mean, what we're basically saying is, let's come all the way back to where we started. The Bible claims to be a historical document. It's had enormous impact upon the human race, enormous impact upon our culture. If anyone claims to be educated or wants to understand, they need to read the Bible for themselves, not just read about it. They do need to read it. And we would both suggest, I think, starting with the Gospels. But I, I think it's just very, very important what you've stressed in this chapter about this is the history. If this really happened, everything changes. If these documents are phony and didn't come for another 200 years or something, you'd expect there to be no history supporting them. For that. But then you've got all these people, Polycarp and uh, Ignatius and um, Papias, who knew the um, apostles, who, who, who interacted with uh, Clement of Rome, who, who knew Peter. And they left substantial writings, and they're widely dispersed geographically. So if the whole thing is a made-up conspiracy, then they had to make up another, a second conspiracy, traversing all these different parts of the ancient world. So when you put the whole lot of evidence together, it's overwhelming. But, David, my final thought is just to say um, what fun it is to talk about this and how exciting a story it is. And if we can go back to our favourite Chesterton, you know, he said he, he journeyed all around the world intellectually and found that he'd come back to discover the place that he'd started from. Western civilization has, has entertained every crackpot theory in the world about the New Testament, from the Da Vinci Code to Jesus was from outer space, every crackpot theory in the world. And when you get through them all, you come back to the evidence, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the official, the first documents, the church, the apostolic father, everything else, the historicity, you know, the inscriptions in the New Testament, which turn out to be true, where the Roman historians got them slightly wrong and so on and so on. Mm. It's a, yeah. The modern Western mind needs to confront the overwhelming evidence for the New Testament mm. and then read the New Testament itself and then, by all means, reject it if you like. But mm -hmm. uh, it's, very, um, it's very lame to just say, well, this can't be true, so I'm not going to pay any attention to it. Uh, I think that's uh, that's very lame. It is lame. You know, you mentioned uh, John Dixon's. Um, you mentioned the book John Dixon's. Uh, you know, the Jesus Jesus history, and I I, I find his uh, work is just really helpful at a popular level. In in mm. in just going, oh wait a minute, this was for real. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned since you mentioned, I, I, I'm going to leave you with this, um, and and leave everyone with this. 
you know, sources. I mean, when I read this uh, in the, the I, I love reading the Church Fathers, and I read this from, it's from Quadratus, writing to the Emperor Hadrian in the year AD 124. And this is what he says, our Savior's works, moreover, were always present, for they were real, consisting of those who'd been healed of their diseases, those who'd been raised from the dead, who were not only seen whilst they were being healed and raised up, but were afterwards constantly present. Nor did they remain only during the sojourn of the Savior on earth, but also a considerable time after his departure. And then this is what blew me away. And indeed, some of them have survived even down to our own times. Now, Quadratus was absolutely writing to the emperor and saying, listen, we've got people who witnessed all this still alive today. You know, they must have been very old, but I just think it's, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And, and Greg, thank you so much. For those who are watching this, I'm just holding up, those of you who are listening, Christians, the urgent case for Jesus in our world. Uh, I'm not flanneling. Honestly, this book is a great book and you need to get it. That's why we're discussing it. Uh, next time we come back, we're going to look at the intriguing title, The Jesus You Meet in John and The Jesus Kanishka Met There. And some of us will know who Kanishka is and others of you won't, but we will doubtless discuss him. Greg, thank you very much, mate. God bless you. Enjoy your freedom from lockdown. Thank you very much, David. Real joy to be with you.